The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we have the pleasure of talking with one of the world's, if not the world's, foremost sports psychology authority, Dr. Harold Shinitsky. Harold, welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And I won't hold your first name against you. But... <laughs> Ditto. Thank you. Now, sports psychology is something that's really, really come into its own prominence in the past several years. Yes. Explain to our audience how you got into this field. Well, I'll tell you, to, to say I was on the other side of the coin, I was actually an athlete, a uh, tennis player, and we had a sports psychologist that worked with our team. And I'm a Midwestern boy, so my whole way of going through life is, can't we just get along? Well, in sport, that didn't quite help out when it came to competitive. So for me, the specific work was the work on the kill instinct, the ability to be laser focused, uh, that it is a commitment to the task at hand. And it really helped me to be able to kind of push through for the task, which was when I was ahead, to feel confident, competent, and comfortable in that position and run through the finish line. So sports psychology was introduced to me as a player, and I was majoring in psychology. I got up to uh, Johns Hopkins at the School of Medicine, and I was doing my training there, and I was the director of prevention services in pediatrics. Through prevention work, I was introduced to a number of athletes who were making bad decisions. That opened up me working with numerous teams in the area, the Dunbar Poets, and we won the state championship, the DeMatha Stags in DC, and won the national championship. And that's how it started to expand. And I began using my clinical work and sports site for performance enhancement with athletes. What role does mindfulness play in all of this? Uh, I'd probably say about 100%. <laughs> All athletes, as you move forward from beginning intermediate to the elite level, have to be able to be in the moment. I always talk about we are all, we're, we, we wake up every day with a limited or a finite amount of energy. and You can expend it well, wisely, or poorly. And individuals who are not mindful, who are not in the moment, tend to waste their energy. And there's three ways to waste your energy. And that's wishing, worrying, and whining. Wishing the past was different, worrying about the future that has yet to occur, or whining about things outside of our control. And so individuals who dwell on the past, you oftentimes hear them talk about being in a slump because they're still focusing on the past rather than being in the moment. Worrying about the future, well, that's an outcome after I take care of the process. So if I'm focused on that, I'm not taking care of the here and now, and then whining about things outside of my control. We always try to help our athletes control the controllables. So being mindful and being in the moment is an absolute must at all levels, in particular, once you reach the highest level. And I guess that can apply to life in general. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do a lot of corporate training. And it's stunning how many individuals will create these monsters in their head. Um, I just did a um, 
four-part series with the financial advisement group and one of the large investment companies. And there were many of the financial advisors who actually talked themselves out of doing things. They would sabotage themselves out of the fear of what might occur. And because of that, they were now focused on the future, creating these obstacles that didn't exist. And so they actually needed to be brought back to this reality of, all right, what can you do to increase your probability of success? There are no guarantees, but what can you do to increase your probability of success? Do you have a favorite sport or athlete you like to treat or no? Oh, gosh. Um, depends on what the subject is. Uh, baseball players have the most superstitions. Um, they're really, really enjoyable to talk with to help them kind of get empowered again versus some of these really wonderful, bizarre behaviors that they engage in. Um, Everyone wants, you want to have a routine, but some of them get kind of ritualistic. Uh, I really personally enjoy working with probably the three best that I enjoy. Tennis, since that was a love of mine. I love the details in it. Um, pairs figure skaters for our Olympic teams. I work with them, and they're an incredible group when you have to work with the two to become one. Um, and then also golfers, because... The only thing that is occurring is you're standing there and a the ball's not moving. You have to hit it. Um, you're not reacting to anything around you. And it's stunning to watch those individuals um, improve once they start to understand these principles. The anxiety in yeah. all sports, I would imagine, is that the number one thing you, uh, you treat or how would you say it? It's probably the number one thing I treat, but I, I want to clarify for all your listeners, and this is always a blast to share, especially as a psychologist. Um, when it comes to the sports that we're talking about, um, you know, whether it's golf or tennis or things of that nature that people play, I always like to point out there is no such thing as stress. <laughs> I like being provocative and getting a reaction. So what I talk about is what makes, what makes you stressed doesn't necessarily make me stressed. And what makes me stressed doesn't necessarily make you stressed. So the situation itself is actually neutral. It's based on your perception of the situation. And that's a definition of life, your perception of a situation, your self-talk, and how you manage it. I don't know if you've ever jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, but there are people who do it for fun. If you think there's a tiger outside your door, you're going to be really nervous. It doesn't matter that there isn't a tiger. Your emotions are not based on reality. Your emotions are based on your perception of reality. And helping my athletes as early as possible understand that I possess the experience, the skill, the coaching. That's all I'm focused on in this moment. I try to encourage as young as possible it doesn't matter the name of an event, the number of people watching, or the potential trophy that you could win. The name of the event doesn't change the laws of physics. Gravity is still gravity. Magnetism is still there. In golf, it's still ball, club, and the laws of physics. The name of the event isn't something that I'm focusing on. It's the event and the task. The number of people, doesn't matter if there's 22 people or 22 million, none of them touch you. If I'm focusing on them, I'm not focusing on the task at hand. 
and the potential award, whether it's a gold medal in the Olympics or a trophy at the local club, that's an aftermath. That is an outcome. What I want everyone to do is focus on the process. So I try as early as possible to help them understand the concept to liberate them from this idea of stress. Boy, I can see why you are who you are. That was good. <laughs> I've done this for a while. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, um, I was once uh, at age 21 in first year medical school. I had won the New England heavyweight Golden Gloves, and I was out in Las Vegas where my Uncle Mo used to work at Caesars, and he was like a nobody that everybody loved. Sinatra would say hello, Jilly, all those people. And but his friend, who I still talk to, Lem Banker, who's about 95 now, was the most powerful guy out there. And through him, I used to get to hang out with celebrities. So I'm out there, I'm 21, I'm walking around Caesar's Palace with one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time, Joe Lewis. Yeah. And uh we're talking, and I said, Champ, I got a confession to make. He says, What? I said, Well. Every time I have a fight, I get really scared before the fight and I get sick the week before and I want to chicken out and the day of the fight, I'm a basket case. And, and then I get in the ring and I do what I got to do. And Joe Lewis puts his arm around me. He says, Doc, we all take fear into the ring with us. It's what you do with it that makes you a champion. Now, yeah. mind you, this guy lost to Max Schmeling and in the rematch for the championship before 100,000 people, I think it was 1939, with Adolf Hitler in the audience. Right. That's pressure. That's, that's <laughs> pressure, you know? Well, you, you bring up a beautiful, beautiful statement. And I always like to share this. Um, it's a simple but elegant equation. Investment plus perceived threat, real or imagined, equals anxiety. So Max, you know, was fighting and yeah, Joe and everyone is out there with this mindset of oh, my life is on the line. Um, I'm representing my country. I want to look good and be triumphant. I'm highly invested. Uh, there is a perceived threat. And like I said, it could be real. It could be imagined. Uh, this guy's trying to knock my head off. Um, I could be embarrassed. I, I could change the course of history. Investment plus perceived threat, that's when start, you start experiencing this anxiety, as we call it, or arousal to the system. And if you understand that, then it makes more sense. So if you were not invested in something, but there is a perceived threat, you don't care. Kid who doesn't want to go to school and the administrator says, you know, I'm going to suspend you. It's like, hey, cool, thanks. Um, they're not invested. And if you are invested, but you don't perceive the threat, you know, I'm ready for the exam. Uh, I, I think I studied enough and you might actually fail. Um, as long as those two things exist, investment plus perceived threat, real or imagined, equals anxiety. And then the fun thing, like you were just talking about it in there, anxiety. Most people just talk about it as, you know, anxiety. The body doesn't know anxiety. The body doesn't know pressure. The body doesn't know tension. The body doesn't know those things. The body only knows that there is a release of certain chemicals in the body and the body becomes aroused. So um, adrenaline, uh, norepinephrine, uh, cortisol, and the body reacts. We arouse because of some perception, thought, 
um, uh, or feeling that we have. And so I always like to ask my athletes, when you talk about anxiety, it comes in one of three forms. It could be all of them together, but there's three different ways. There's physical experience of threat, I'm sorry, of anxiety where, you know, muscle tightness, your heart races, you start changing your breathing pattern, galvanic skin response, the whole nine yards. So physiological, you could talk about it as cognitive. I start speaking negatively to myself, worst case scenarios and feelings, worries, dreads. And so I always talk to the athletes, what do you experience? Could it be all three? Could it be two of them? Or could it be one? Because we can address each one of those three independently. Let's talk about your book, A Champion's Mindset, 15 Mental Conditioning Steps to Becoming a Champion Athlete that could help anyone, really. But let's give our audience one tool from there, like yeah. one tool that they can apply not only let's to their sports, but they're beautiful. Here, let's just open up any of these in here. Oh, this is fun. All right, so uh, I'm just gonna pick one out of here. Okay, increase your probability of success. Just that simple concept right there. Um, too many individuals will try their best to control things outside of their control. And they will anticipate, expect things based on their belief system, which is fine and nice because you're striving for a goal. But there are never any guarantees in life. There's only two that I know of, and we all know what those two are, you know, death and taxes. But besides that, there are no guarantees. You could be... You can study your hardest. It doesn't guarantee you're getting an A. You can prep for the sale, but it doesn't mean that the customer is going to go with it. Um, you know, you can plan for a fight, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing you can ever do is increase your probability of success. So I always like to talk with the individuals, whether they're a student in school trying to get good grades, uh, corporations where they're talking about trying to set goals to sales or in sport. What are the incremental steps that will increase your probability of success? You don't have to do them all every day, but if you're doing them, they are moving you in the direction, the trajectory of the ultimate goal. So you can apply this in any situation. The book, like you were saying, has universal truths. It's just all the examples are sports examples. And so people who read the book can find that it does apply to your life. So I always like to say, there are no guarantees in life. The only thing you ever can do is increase your probability of success. Playing the numbers, increasing one's odds. Yeah. Yep. I had, a, I had a young guy in one of the major uh, SEC schools down here, and he, for some reason, decided that he wanted to keep his grades around a 2.0, which is the minimum that he could have to play in the NCAAs. And he got sick, missed a quiz, dropped below it, went on suspension, couldn't play. His coach referred him to me, and we were chatting. And he was a bright enough young man, but he never applied himself academically. And <laughs> so I said, all right, so what's your goal? He goes, let's get good grades, better grades. And I said, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I'm going to try harder. And I said, I don't know what that means. I'm sure trying is really nice, but let's break it into strictly behavioral steps. So he said, well, you know, I can do my homework. I said, yeah, you do your homework, but do you know there's also something called studying? Now he had never learned the difference between those two. Homework is an assignment, studying is acquiring the information. So he talked about that. 
And I said, well, you know, go to class. And he said, I can maybe go to a study group before an exam. And I said, well, you can go to the teacher's office hours. And we went back and forth on all these behavioral steps to increase his probability of success. Two weeks later, I saw him, I asked him how things are going. And he said, you know, doc, that going to class really helps. <laughs> what a novel idea. <laughs> so yes, you want to do everything you, well, it's interesting, the beginning of the book, I talk about the sports psychology triangle. So it's behavior and cognitive and then feelings, affect, feelings, um, physiological, it could also be. And uh, the behavioral stuff, I always ask, are you doing everything you could or should in order to be the best that you can be? And in this case, he obviously, when it came to getting grades, he wasn't doing everything he could or should in order to become his optimal student. I do that with athletics, I do it in sales. Are you doing everything you could or should? And so at that case, I pointed out to him, we really need to just look at strictly the basic behaviors. And that's applying to everybody too. Many attributes that are high-functioning autistic population, let's call it Asperger's, yeah. uh, many of their traits are beneficial to those who want to be a champion tennis player or golfer or other sport. Focus and obsession, if you will, or hyper-focus and everything. Uh, without giving any names or anything, have you worked with some of our neurodiverse individuals? Because I'll take it a step further. I think in order to be a champion, your brain has to be a little bit different. <laughs> well, I talk about 25 different characteristics of elite athletes. And one of them is that you have to be physiologically a freak of nature. I mean, you have to be the anomaly. You know, you are the outlier. And so the capacity to function physically and cognitively is different. Um, you know, so there are strengths and weaknesses, and there are some people, no matter how hard they try or work, they won't make it to the most elite level. And yes, I have worked with individuals who are on the spectrum. I was fortunate way back, and I hate to admit this, back in 1980, during uh, undergrad, um, I had the opportunity of doing a rotation for a uh, um, autism on the spectrum, uh, individuals in the community where I was at, at the University of Iowa. And it was just great working with these individuals. When I got to Hopkins in 88, we started working with this group of uh, young adults who were on the spectrum, but they were slightly different than the traditional autistic individual. And they were later on in 1994, when the diagnosis came to the States, they were identified as Asperger's. And I love working with these young adults. Um, usually, right, uh, usually 135 or higher IQ. Uh, rule followers, incredibly nice individual. Uh, concrete in the way they think, details. Uh, they miss out on the nonverbal cues. Uh, abstractions are lost on them. They're desperately trying to get along and be accepted but they don't understand the unwritten rules that everyone seems to know, but no one teaches. And to help these individuals to be able to understand, and I always like to talk about it as, well, these are just developmental milestones. It's not that you know, you're damaged or broken or something like that, but I set it up almost in an intellectual scientific way that, oh, it's a developmental milestone. So I always like to say, in real estate, the three most important factors are 
location, location, location. If you're on the spectrum, the three most important factors are practice, practice, practice. So you want to work on developing kind of the associative cortex of the brain. Practice the behavior so we can increase the neural pathways in the brain for that behavior. So as one of the young adults said to me, why do I have to show my teeth and grab onto someone's hand when I say hello? What a great observation. Why do we have to? I mean, as a, as a predator, I could see showing the teeth, grasping hand for power. But I pointed out, I said, you're right. You're noticing that in our society, to increase your probability of socially connecting, people show their teeth and grasp each other's hands. So it may not make sense to you in terms of a natural kind of emotional experience that I'm bonded, but intellectually, oh, I get it. I'm supposed to do this. Hi, how are you doing? So I love working with these individuals because they're detail focused. Oh my gosh, they be, you know, they're known as little professors. They become the world's expert on potentially some inane topics and some incredibly detailed topics. The capacity to go and pursue those as a degree can be fantastic. You don't have to become the world's expert on a subject, but you can find areas that are personally very rewarding and helping those individuals flourish is something that I personally find and professionally find very rewarding. I have never heard that put so eloquently as you just did. That was amazing. No, really, that was. I get lucky every once in a while. <laughs> wow. What a, uh, what a clip that is. That's uh, great. Tell us a bit about your history working with Olympic athletes. Gosh, um, nowadays I have the opportunity uh, of working with pairs figure skaters in the Olympics. We, we have a, a skating facility down here in Florida, of all places, most people find that kind of odd. Um, but in Florida, we have a, a couple of them now that are just phenomenal facilities, fantastic coaches. Uh, the Southwest facility down here, the skating rink, fantastic coaches from around the world who have an opportunity to work with pairs figure skaters to be able to move from um, the junior ranks, novice levels, all the way up to national champions and then on to the Olympics. So part of my role is to be able to help with uh, performance enhancement, you know, how to be laser focused, um, how to be able to let go of the past, to be in the moment, mindfulness, uh, the capacity of not being distracted by externals, to have a consistent self-confidence. Um, I always like to say to these athletes, you should never ride your highest highs and you should never ride your lowest lows. You're not as good as your favorite fan says and you're not as bad as your worst critic says. So based on what's your average, um, if I, let's use basketball for example, if I can shoot 80% free throws and that's my average, that doesn't mean I'm always hitting 80%. It means it's a range, and on average, it's 80%. So that's my self-confidence. I always talk about what's your average. Today, I might be shooting better. Tonight, I might not be shooting better, but I don't let my self-confidence flow on the situational outcome, but rather, what's my average? 
So the question is, what's your average and is it improving? And so with my Olympic athletes, whether they're pairs figure skaters, um, a crew member on the eight woman uh, crew team, divers, um, sail, uh, sailboat racers, um, for any of them, uh, biathletes in the Winter Olympics, the capacity to be in the moment, going back to that mindfulness, when it comes to the singular event that they have been training for years, how not to get caught up in the moment. And what's rather interesting about that statement, and I'll, I'll say this for all of the viewers and listeners, you cannot tell your brain what not to focus on. Your brain will only focus on what you tell it to focus on. So if I'm a golfer and I can drive a ball 300 yards, but at 75 yards, there's a small creek. And I think to myself, water hole. All right, here, let me get my scuffed golf ball. Yeah, and then I get up to the tee box and I start saying to myself, don't hit it in the water. The only thing my brain is focusing on is the water. It's not focusing on the form that I would normally use to hit a ball 300 yards. So if I'm telling myself, don't do something, like right now, if I ask your listeners, don't think of a big purple elephant, especially the one with pink polka dots. Even if you're successful, you remind yourself, look, I'm not thinking, oh, now I'm thinking about it. So, so it's not, don't focus on something. It's no, no, what do you want to focus on? And so we repeat that over and over. What is it that I want to focus on? So if is it, am I going horizontal and I have to move to a vertical maneuver in ice skating? I have to be able to take my energy and lift. Well, what's my proper positioning? Where does my arm go when I lift vertically? How do I spot my landing ahead of time? I focus on what I need to, and I do it so frequently, it becomes automatic. I'm not overthinking. I'm not paralysis through analysis. It becomes automatic at this point. So it's not, don't focus on that. It's what do I want to focus on? And that's probably one of the greatest thing I can do with the elite athletes. Well said. This is good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, it's all in the book. I'm telling you. <laughs> How can people learn more about you? Well, I got some friends that they talk to. They tell you there's, you know. <laughs> um, if you want, I have a website and I'm on social media. Uh, my website is www.drshinitsky.com. Uh, also, Facebook, pretty much professional page, um, Twitter, YouTube channel. I have a couple of videos up there. Uh, I do an awful lot of presentations. So if someone wanted to reach out and call me, um, they can certainly contact me directly. Um, I can give that number without any problem. I enjoy working with communities. Again, if you remember when I was at Hopkins, I was the director of prevention services. So my whole thing is to get the information out to the masses, which is why I wrote a book. It's my third book now. Um, so I'm at 727-560-2697. Love to be able to share this information with anybody who's interested. 
And I'm always grateful for the feedback that I get from the attendees at my presentations. Well, Dr. Harold Shinitsky, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here for another episode of Exploring Different Brains. It has been my honor. Thank you. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.